0: what's up everyone and welcome to the weekly edition of esg now where we cover how the environment our society and corporate governance affects and are affected by our economy I'm your host, Mike DiCibato, and this week we are going to talk about the slow burn protests. Because the years-long resistance by the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe to stop the flow of oil in the Dakota Access Pipeline in the U.S. has prevailed after a judge on Monday ordered it to be shut down and for it to be completely emptied of oil in 30 days. A ruling that also coincided with the U.S. Supreme Court ordering that the Keystone Pipeline could not continue to be built, and the abandonment by Duke Energy and Dominion Energy of their Atlantic Coast pipeline because community opposition increased the financial and reputational cost beyond what the companies determined to be economically viable. Then we discuss the more than $3,000 US price tag that was set on remdesivir, a drug shown to be useful in fighting COVID, which seems like a lot of money, at least until you get into the details and are surprised. Thanks as always for joining us. Stay tuned. So the ruling was on this obscure permitting process that the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers uses to allow pipelines and other commodity infrastructure projects to be built on lands. And it's called the Nationwide Permit 12 or NWP 12. So NWP 12 is an acronym that's hard to remember because it's so boring. But what's important to remember about NWP 12 is it's kind of like a flat do-whatever-you-want over a bunch of different states permitting process usually without NWP 12 a pipeline uh, company for example would have to go to each different states regulators each different environmental regulators and say I want to build this pipeline over here I want to build this pipeline over here it's by these wetlands it's by these waterways can you give me a permit and they would have to prove that it's environmentally okay to a bunch of different regulators in a bunch of different states because the US's environmental law is fractured and fragmented. With an NWP 12, you can just say I had this permit so I can go forward with the project. It's like an all-access pass. So if the NWP 12 is removed, then the project becomes much more difficult to get through, it becomes much more time-consuming, it becomes much more costly, and it involves many more stakeholders. And so what happened was in April, When I and everybody else was thinking about COVID, a federal district judge in Montana ruled in favor of indigenous tribes and environmental advocates that the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers violated provisions of the Endangered Species Act when it reissued its National Permit 12 in 2017 for the Dakota Access Pipeline, the Keystone Pipeline, a bunch of other pipelines. And this set up a legal battle because the ruling basically put a kibosh on a lot of pipelines being built in the u.s. and then on monday one court ruled that the dakota access pipeline had to shut down then the u.s. supreme court said while nwp-12 ruling really might not affect all the pipelines in the u.s. it certainly does affect the keystone excel pipeline and that has to stop and then duke and dominion energy said okay that's it this is the last straw We are no longer building our atlantic coast pipeline across the appalachian trail and they got out of there and at first blush this seems like it's just an environmental win there are 2 million miles of oil and gas pipelines in the u.s and they either have a safety or environmental issue 1.7 times per day according to frack tracker but this is also a big social win and by social i mean the s in esg social which a lot of people overlook In part, the S in ESG says that before a company builds a massive project in a community, it might first want to create a system for effective and inclusive community engagement, integrate international human rights laws and norms, provide a system for sustainable community development, and I don't mean just saying that there will be more jobs. If a company doesn't do this and instead six dogs on protesters, such as what happened with the Dakota Access Pipeline, it may face further protests and project delays, and it might cost them millions and billions, which then might turn into legal challenges and eventually having to scrap the project, such as what happened to Duke and Dominion Energy. And this is true regardless of how environmentally friendly your project is. Renewable energy companies have lately come under pressure by communities for disrupting life as they build their carbon-neutral energy systems in the same way as a lot of fossil fuel companies have been doing it. And so this NW-12 decision is a big win for the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe. It's a big win for indigenous communities everywhere. And it shows how important community relations are to a company's project. Because remember, the Keystone XL pipeline was what the Trump administration said in the first week of its presidency, that it would get this thing built. So you could have a friend that's in the most powerful position in the country and still run into trouble. The question is, will oil and gas companies take note? And to answer that question, I have with me our oil and gas specialist, Antonios Panogiotopoulos. And Antonios, you've covered the Keystone XL Pipeline since the beginning. Do you think oil and gas companies now have to address social issues in the same way that they are being forced to address environmental issues.
1: Absolutely. Um, especially in the Americas, in including both uh, the U.S. and Canada, um, we've, we see, if you like, uh, an arbitrage between uh, uh, regulatory environments on the sense that Canada may have a, a bit stricter uh, um, uh, environment in the sense that uh, companies uh, need to provide uh, from the beginning A fully detailed environmental, but increasingly a social aspect of the the new project, including how the company manages its relations with indigenous populations and uh, landowners uh, in the area that may be crossing uh, the pipeline. In the United States, there has not been. Um, whereas there, there are rules, and of course, there is the the, uh, the federal bodies, uh, including the Army Corps of Engineers um, uh, and the the EPA. Uh, both on the federal and at, at the state level, um, there hasn't been, if you like, a a uh, an umbrella uh, regulation that will cover all pipelines, irrespective. Uh, so therefore, um, uh, there have been some gaps in in regulations, if you like. Um, and also this has been also um, exaggerated by the by the, the by the increase that we have seen in pipeline building. I think
0: this increase and the increase of environmental risks ha- has led to investors calling on companies to put someone that is paying attention to environmental risks on their board of uh, not just like a geologist, not just someone that understands the like chemistry or whatnot, but someone that is intimately involved with the discussions around sustainability, environmentalism, and things like that. And to TC Energy's credit, they do have one gentleman named Stephen Williams who joined the board in 2019 and he was the Canadian rep at the Paris Agreement in 2015 when they passed the Paris Accord. And he was appointed to the national roundtable on the environment and the economy by the Prime Minister of Canada. But that's it. He's the only guy there. And TC Energy does not have a single board member that boasts expertise in social relations or social performance or community relations or community ties. I'm not just talking about board members that donate or are part of nonprofits. I'm talking about someone who's an expert in community relations. And, and this is also true and its competitor, uh, Energy Transfer, who owns the Dakota Access Pipeline. And another competitor, Enbridge, does have a woman named Pamela Carter who has a master's in social work, but that's it. And this is an issue because as we've been talking about, there's community pushback and the capacity to identify, measure, and mitigate social risk kind of needs to be done at the board or executive level uh, or it's just going to be not paid attention to, to. So do you think investors are going to start to push oil and gas companies and mining companies and any resource intensive companies that deal with a lot of community relations issues to have someone on their board that understands broad community issues.
1: Absolutely. That would be definitely an improvement to to the current status, especially if you think that the operations of some of these companies range between countries and across thousand or even million, millions of miles. So, the, the 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 idea of being able to uh, have a, uh, a, a if you like a framework of how to develop and uh, sustain relationships with uh, communities along you know, the path of your operations is critical and it's critical both as a uh, as a long-term um, uh, viability issue and um, But it is also um, uh, an issue for how these companies would continue to operate in good terms with those communities. Uh, Also a security issue. Um, We have seen in Canada where, uh, again, because the regulatory environment is a bit stricter, the management capacity of companies is uh, sufficient enough to, to, uh, if you like, comply um that those companies are starting to set up committees with indigenous tribes where they actually um uh discuss and try to find common solutions to to to, to problems uh so a, a, at least a dialogue in the most advanced uh, uh uh scenarios has actually started to occur uh if those would be reflected at the board level as well uh that would be Uh, Really interesting, at least for those companies.
0: I, you know, I'm glad you brought up the board because I have a question about the board at Duke and Dominion Energy. Because, as I said at the beginning, they had to scrap a billion, -billion multi-billion-dollar project because they decided it's just not worth it. They've had a bunch of legal issues, a bunch of community issues. It's cost them around three billion extra dollars because of this. And then after the WP. Uh, NWP ruling, they said, okay, forget about it. But they wanted to build this pipeline called the uh, ACP or the Atlantic Coast Pipeline along the Appalachian Trail. And the a- uh, the Appalachian Trail is like this really pristine piece of land. And a lot of people go to it to kind of find themselves. and It's a huge community building thing. And it's kind of How was the board not aware that this was going to be such a big problem? To answer that question, I want to turn to Umar Ashvak, who joins us, because he just wrote a research note on this situation. And so, Umar, was the board not aware that them building in this really picturesque and well-known natural park going to cause a lot of societal and community relations problems for the project?
2: Yeah. So the project initially, let's step back a bit. So the project initially was supposed to cost 4.5 billion, and that inflated all the way to 8 billion due to delays as well as cost overruns because of massive opposition that the that the companies have uh, seen Duke and Dominion to from environmental quarters as well as uh, landowners, and the or the 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 focus there. Uh, Remained that this is not the best use of uh, capital allocation And this was something which the investors at ultra brought up uh, At the annual general meeting of uh, Dominion uh, Dominion, uh, Energy So the interesting thing to note here Is that Dominion itself has a target to have offshore wind, solar uh, and, uh, And on and offshore wind As well as energy storage projects And they have specific targets by 2028 the Dominion and Duke both actually have uh, net zero targets for carbon for their carbon emissions by 2050, and all of this was incongruent with what the Atlantic Gas Pipeline was doing, which was essentially feeding natural gas to towards the East Coast. So ca- investors have criticized, and so have uh, environmental activists and other stakeholders how the the pipeline was right from the get-go completely incongruent with what the companies state that they wanted to do so this is shifting the narrative in where you are seeing things like where the company chooses to source its gas from and where the where the pipeline actually flows through and you are reading about and there has been a lot, a lot of commentary about how this is passing through several national parks it's passing through some national forests and one of the most pristine regions within um, uh, within within Virginia. So this these were conversation items which were earlier never discussed whether, whenever we had discussions on uh, right of way clearance, be it for electric transmission and distribution lines or uh, pipeline situation.
0: So we found out last week what the first drug that's effective against the coronavirus will cost. Remdesivir, which is distributed by Gilead, will cost about $520 per vial or $3,120 per treatment course. And to discuss this, I have with me Julia Jaguer because she's been on a couple times discussing how drug pricing is affected by Uh, a thing like a pandemic what happens with the global supply chain when these drugs are needed to help save society and i want julia to kind of give us some idea of what it means for this price to be in the hundred dollar mark because there's a lot of people that can't afford it but i want to remind you listening that we're going to be talking about risks to companies and we're going to be mostly talking about insured individuals there's a huge cohort of uninsured individuals in the u.s that have lost their health insurance either because they were laid off or or they just never had it. That's a major risk to our system, but it's not something we're going to be discussing today. So when we talk, Julia and I, we're really going to be talking about just risks to companies, risk to insurance companies, and how these insured individuals are going to deal with accessing remdesivir. So Julia, could you kind of take me through what it means for this price tag to still be so high?
3: Yeah, so, so the lowest price isn't necessarily the best or the right price as with everything, there's usually the short-term implications and then there's the long-term implications. The million-dollar question is, what is a reasonable price? And there's several things to consider. There's generally the cost-effectiveness, um, which is the value to individuals and in society. There's the access. There's the equitable pricing based on affordability. And then there's also the incentives for companies to keep producing the medicines that people need. And you know, in terms of pricing, we're in completely uncharted territory here. You know, it's not like buying a new car. Medicines and drugs are not commodities. They're in a completely different bucket. They're in sort of a fundamental human rights access bucket. Um, But, you know, if you were to buy a car, you'd probably get a consumer report. You try a few cars out, go to different dealers, test drive a few different versions. And with Remdesivir, um, you know, if you need a car, you have one car to choose from. It's okay, not great. And then there's only one car dealership, and the price is what it is, even if you're paying all cash. So that's kind of how I think about it. Um, but when you said high price for for remdesivir, I think the biggest thing is is cost effectiveness. That's essentially the best starting place is the math. Um, and When you think about that, um, and if you've done your research, Mike, which I know you have, (laughs) is that the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review, or ICR, um, it's a nonprofit that analyzes drug pricing, right? So Remdesivir, they have priced as cost-effective at Four thousand five hundred eighty to five thousand eighty per treatment course.
0: Okay, so it's within those bounds. Um, but before the call, you were telling me you were really worried about the fiscal viability of Medicare and hospitals. Um, for those people that do have insurance, for those people that are under Medicare, could you kind of talk about this three thousand dollars price tag in relation to what it does to the Medicare facility, uh, what it does to hospitals? What it does for people that are lucky enough to have that kind of coverage in the U.S., even though there are a lot of people that currently do
1: not.
3: Well, so I just I, I just want to back up there for a second because that $3,000, that is not – that's not what you – or me or my parents would be paying, right? So that is the way that um, Remdesivir works and the way that it's funded. And which is why I said I'm mostly concerned about the hospitals actually paying for this and also Medicare funding it is because the reality is, is that the most of the COVID cases, they're, you know, elderly adults, right? They're mostly covered by Medicare. So government funded program. And the reality is, is that it all depends on the reimbursement rates of how this drug will be reimbursed. Um, So it's not, you know, we pay a fraction. You or, you know, anybody really that goes to the hospital is very much shielded from this cost. We're paying generally a fraction of what it actually costs. So you're not paying out-of-pocket $3,000 Medicare or your health insurance company is paying. And in specifically with respect to remdesivir, um, many of the insurance companies have actually said, you know, that they're that they're waiving any types of co-pays and co co-costs. So you have UNH, um, Cigna, uh, CVS and Aetna that just had similar statements. And then there's also Mike, then there's also like the long term implications, right? Like if companies actually don't yes, you said earlier there's this isn't gonna be the first you know, well, it's not, it's definitely not the first, but it's not gonna be the last coronavirus to come along most likely, mm-hmm. right? So if you're not incentivizing companies and you're not giving them the opportunity to have to make some sort of profit, which is within a reasonable, you know, setting, then you are essentially taking away incentives for that for them to develop these, these medicines and infusions in the future. You know, why should they go in there? Like Gilead is, is in the game, right? There are plenty of companies that don't even want to be in the game. Because they don't want to deal with this shit, excuse my language.
4: <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So
3: you're you're by 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 bringing up the whole like, let me just lead this company to an at cost. Yes, yes, they could they could offer it at cost, but they're set. They're also setting a precedent for future incentives for other companies. Um, you know, at cost ten dollars. They've spent what about a billion based on their last. You know, then you have seventy million taxpayer money, but like, there's. There is incentives for the future to also invest for companies. You don't, what you don't want to have happen in terms of long-term implications is get into a situation where you have anti, like the antibiotics, right? Where there is pushing down prices so far that no company wants to actually get their hands dirty. No company wants to enter the playing field.
0: And that's it for the week. I wanted to thank Antonios and Umar and Julia for coming on to discuss this week's news with an ESG twist. I wanted to thank you so much for listening. As always, don't forget to rate and review us. I'm always looking to improve and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I hope you're staying strong out there for whatever you're fighting for, and I'll talk to you next week.
4: The MSCI ESG Research podcast is provided by MSCI Inc's subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research LLC, a registered investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to and or received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or a promotional recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.